long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and politics. I'm Will Miller, a political scientist currently employed as an associate vice president with Campus Labs. And joining me today is a new voice for the Politics Guys, Brian Smikowski. Um, in interest of full disclosure, Brian and I have been uh, good friends for, I don't know, eight or nine years at this point, and Brian was actually involved on the uh, the hiring committee that got me my first academic job at Southeast Missouri State University, um, and I'm really looking forward to, to this week's conversation, because um, Brian and I already have some some natural off-mic chemistry. Um, so, Brian, welcome to the show, and if you want to take a minute and give, a, give our listeners a, an idea of your background and your beliefs. Sure thing, Will. Thanks. And uh, yeah, in full disclosure, Will and I have been friends for a long time, and we've enjoyed arguing with one another pretty passionately and consistently over the span of eight years and have had a relationship with Stand All That nonetheless. Um, so thank you, Will. Yeah, I'm Brian Smankowski here at the University of Idaho, where I'm a political science professor and also serve as the founding director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning, the director of service learning, and a variety of other little things on the administrative side. So I'm primarily in sort of an administrative capacity at the university, but still teach and research in the field of political science. Um, having done some work on perceptions of threats to religious liberty, misreading and misunderstanding the Bill of Rights, and also um, doing some work now on election law and election sciences. Well, awesome. Um... And it's been a while since I've actually done the show. So the first story I really want to talk about this week, Brian, is one that, you know, is still kind of working itself through the system, but remains a, a main focal point, I think, for, for those of us that are following politics closely. And that's obviously where we stand today with the, the Mueller investigation. And obviously this week, in terms of updates, we still don't have a publicly released report. We have, um, obviously reports that it'll be out by mid-April at the latest in its entirety. We have other reports saying by the end of May. Uh, we obviously have investigators that were on the report that are coming out publicly and sort of saying we're not really happy because we don't think that this was actually as kind to Trump as Trump is making it seem, and there's nothing going against that. And at the same time, obviously, we have the the House working through the system trying to get Trump taxes released, which again, separate but related in some way, shape, or form. So I guess Brian, to start us off with this, what's your take on the Mueller report? Does it need to see the public light? Does it not really matter how fair do you think the the memo that we have seen is of reflecting the entire document? I think it should see the light of day. I mean, from the standpoint of, you know, the reason why we have a presumably free press is it's about democratic accountability, right? We have these mechanisms that are in place to basically satiate the public appetite. Now, we know from any long report that's ever been published, and I remember having conversations with you a long time ago about uh, when Hillary Clinton was working on health care policy um, a long time ago, right? And then we had the Patriot Act, and we have these, these magnum opuses that people contribute that nobody really reads, so we rely on the press to help decipher it. I think that there's something about the transparency releasing documents that satisfies our appetite for at least the facade of democracy. Now, what will happen with it from there is that we'll begin to actually, I think, start to pick apart the, the areas where we believe that we were given an adequate representation of the materials in the, the bar report. Um, the bar report is very brief. Uh, there's a lot of questions that still remain. Um, the Republican side is arguing that there may be, may have been some ethical violations and questionable ethical behavior involved in the investigation and the composition of the major report and having something on file and publicly accessible allows us to investigate those questions and it enables us to be able to answer the questions that we still might have lingering about that. From the Democratic side and from the Mueller investigation side, it also gives us an opportunity to see more clearly what the big picture is. And then finally, Will, I think one of the most significant things is that Having had this long setup, and Mueller, to his credit, was not out there in the limelight. He was not projecting this as, you know, I'm going to do this investigation and this, you know, colossal hammer is going to drop in the end. Uh, there were a number of convictions along the way. 
uh, but kind of with neutrality, he then submitted a report and said, it's out of my hands, it's in your hands now. And I think a lot of people in the court of public opinion were expecting something much more significant. They were expecting something much more powerful. They were expecting some concreteness and finality associated with this. On the Democratic side and the left side, it was, you know, remember all the hype and hyperbole that this is going to bring Trump down We're one step closer. And on the Trump side, it's equally strong in terms of saying there's no evidence of collusion. And the question then, and I think this feeds directly into the tax question, is um, why, why, why are we doing the investigations that we're doing and with what impact? And I think that's my big question with this, Brian, is do you think there is a single person in the United States today whose view of Donald Trump is going to be changed by what the Mueller report in its entirety says? Or are we looking at something where we have a bunch of Democrats who are chasing their white whale that will read into it that they have found their white whale, and a bunch of Republicans or a bunch of folks that support Trump saying, there's nothing in here because we're going to look at the same word and come to very different conclusions because we've already formed the court of public. I mean, I haven't met anybody who is out there telling me I need to see the Mueller report so I can figure out if I like Donald Trump or not. I feel like that part of the ship has failed. And I can't disagree in terms of releasing it to the public, having this for archival purposes, having this so we can say that we produce something makes a whole lot of sense. I'm just not sure if it's going to do anything to actually bring closure to the fact that you know, obviously, as you pointed out, a bunch of Democrats thought this was going to be the opportunity to bring Trump down. And there's no denying that they have definitely, this has led to convictions. But ultimately, I mean, we went looking for a great white and we ended up with a bunch of guppies. Um, so what does this do if it does get released? I mean, do you think people's minds will be changed or swayed? Or do you think this will just be an opportunity for both sides to hold up a giant document and say, look, we were right all along? I don't think a single person's going to change his or her mind as a result of this. I really don't. I think that we went into this, and, and let's face it, there was a lot of effective priming on both sides, right? The Democrat left-leaning um, partisans and media were, were arguing that this was going to have some concreteness and finality that will bring the president down. Trump was arguing every day, multiple times a day, that it's a witch hunt that's going to go nowhere. And right now what's happened is that we're, um, we're at a standstill, right? We've had a long investigation. A number of people have gone down, sort of like with mafia investigations, right? A lot of people go down, but then there's still the head of, of the family, so to speak, that might be intact. At this juncture, I think all we're going to get out of this at best is that it satisfies some innate desire we have for democracy to look and feel like it's working by saying it's all there. I don't think that we're going to find any substantial evidence of collusion or significant wrongdoing by the administration, um, as was immediately and initially expected. I do think that there'll be a lot of questions involving other business dealings and transactions, because there's still questions about emoluments, there's still questions about business investments uh, that he had been a part of, and those things will still linger as potentially justiciable disputes. They will still linger, but they're going to be on the margins. I think the public has largely almost moved on from this. I don't think anybody's mind's going to be changed. I think it's just going to give each side an opportunity to develop and reinforce their argument using the same document. It's funny because the, the metaphor you sort of use there is one that's been percolating for me throughout this entire process with the idea of you know, comparing it to a mafia investigation. To some extent, to me, I, I look at it and I compare it to the Watergate to a degree. Um, and I only do that because I think about the fact that obviously Nixon had surrounded himself by people that would fall before he fell, and we could see the dominoes kind of go. Um, and I think that puts especially some on the left in a very precarious position because their argument all along has been Trump is just so reckless and so gung-ho to do what he wants without thinking that we can't in the same breath say that he is reckless and doing things he shouldn't be doing, but also potentially smart enough to make it so that he would be the last domino to fall, which really makes me wonder, you know, in terms of this report, in terms of the remainder of the investigation, in terms of the folks who have fallen, is that reflective of Trump being a, a mastermind at designing this? Or has this been an example where Trump actually maybe was a little more clueless about what some of the folks underneath him were trying to do and 
now at this point obviously can't publicly claim that, but you know, it's definitely an interesting uh, comparison to make sometimes. Speaking about the tax part, this leads to a bigger question. Um, and I guess I'll start with the, the biggest question of all. Do you think presidents should have to have their taxes released? You know, uh, I do. And I want to go back just to the observation that you made earlier, because right now I feel like it's almost like watching a political battle right, between Democrats and Republicans. And I think this is an important observation, because I don't think that we're necessarily going to get anything that is going to topple the administration out of the Mueller report. But what we're seeing is, for some reason, a stellar commitment on either side to having something on record, right, that um, – we it's so almost like trying to outmaneuver and outflank one another. So the other day, for example, um, a court ruled uh, in the McKeever versus Barr case about you know what's known as Rule Six E, which is all about the circumstances under which um, grand jury testimony can be made publicly available. And even in this regard, what we're finding is that the battles are really not about bringing down a president or trying to convict a president. They're really about whether one side has the authority to release information, to make it publicly available to a public that I think just simply doesn't care very much. Now, carrying that into the tax thing, you know, I, I would say that the Democrats really need to be extremely cautious here. Because if it looks like there's nothing substantial that's come from the Mueller investigation, even though there have been substantial actions taken as a result of this, the number of charges and filings and convictions that have come along the way is not insignificant. But if the Democratic Party um, keeps pushing on the agenda of doing investigations and constantly wanting to investigate existing things and new things and different things, I would think strategically that you have to think about potentially undermining your credibility. So with the Trump tax returns, um, when I was reading about uh, the House Ways and Means Chairman uh, Richard Neal and his uh, use of sort of an arcane privilege to be able to compel any citizen to release his or her tax filings, I, I immediately thought of, like, Mitch McConnell's got to be sitting in his office saying, that's good. That's that's such a McConnell kind of move, right? You know, whether you love or hate McConnell or Neil or Trump or anybody, what we find is that we need to acknowledge and recognize their um, mastery of strategy. So I don't think that Trump was a master of strategy. I really don't. I think that he was fortunate in that there were no direct linkages to him involving the investigation, uh, involving the campaign. So I think he was lucky more than he was strategic. I think right now, in terms of the strategy that the House uh, Democrats are taking to get the tax uh, forms released, again, it's a satisfying, it's satisfying an expectation of democracy, but not a rule. There's, you know, is there any public good that comes from it? Not necessarily. So. One of the first things that I think about as a political scientist and when I teach this stuff and people ask questions about, so why is it important to release the taxes? Why is it required? And the answer is it's not required. It's tradition. And I wonder if the public appetite for a drawn-out investigation and inquiry to resurrect an arcane rule to get the president to release the taxes would undermine the Democrats' um, authority here. Because it simply is a matter of tradition where we expect presidents to voluntarily release the tax reform, the tax forms. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of political scientists that, I mean, here's people you and I both know that I, I respected up until a lot of things that happened in the last few years that are just not understanding that just because it's tradition doesn't mean it always goes the way that it's gone before. Um, you know, the founders trusted George Washington to set traditions. They didn't write them into law. They didn't write them into the Constitution. And now there's a lot of those things where Donald Trump is basically saying, screw this, I'm not doing it. Um, he's not doing that directly. He's doing it indirectly. And I think your question of undermining is what I keep falling back on. It's what I keep thinking about as I, as I listen to this show and watch the news and interact with listeners on Facebook. Um, if you're still stuck on the worst thing about Donald Trump is the Mueller investigation and what could be in there, you are in some way, shape, or form saying that's more important to me than anything policy-wise that's happened or anything else he's said or done since. 
And I just don't think the meat's there for that to ultimately end up being actionable. So I think that's going to be the, the tough part now is, you know, if you're saying that the Mueller investigation is your last chance, that is to some degree saying that everything else is acceptable. I mean, acceptable in quotes. I'm not saying people are happy about it. But, you know, I feel like at this point, two years in, you should have more policy-based arguments against what the Trump White House has been about versus relying back to, we still don't like how he got there. So we're going to go back and keep pushing that. Because to some degree, I think all that's going to do is actually propel him with the right wing through 2020, um, which is going to be a very interesting you know, case for everybody in a lot of ways. Yeah, if I were looking at this from the, the Democratic left, I'd be a little bit afraid right now that if all we're doing is the equivalent of shouting out, the equivalent of, um, you know, release the, the emails, right? Um, that's not going to get any, that's not going to get us anywhere. We ought to be having more substantive policy discussions about the things that the president is identifying himself with. We should have more meaningful policy discussions about where the Democratic and Republican parties are, um, converging and also diverging. And what we're, what I think we're doing actually, it's almost like there's a diversion strategy, right? So the Trump administration is very good at saying, hey, everybody, look over here. And you're waving your left hand in the air, right? Look over here, look over here, look over here. But meanwhile, you're doing something with your right hand. And at some level, I, I am concerned that um, many, not all Democrats, are focusing too much on the left hand. And we're focusing too much on things that will make the public say you spent a lot of time and you spent a lot of money on something to which our answer is, who cares? Yes, at some level, we would love the president to abide so by So gig economy workers, take note. You do have to pay taxes. taxes. At some level, we would all love to know for the purpose of democratic accountability what the investigation actually said. We want those things to be in place, but those things are not going to topple the administration, right? Those are the things that are political gains by partisans that really aren't related to the larger issue of where we are right now with significant public policy issues. Totally agree. Just kind of open the door to the 2020 discussion. I think uh, it's a good time to maybe switch gears slightly here. Um, and, and talk about the nomination field and where we stand, but I think we really need to open up, obviously, with the last week, week and a half. Uh, the allegations, the sexual harassment claims with Joe Biden. Um, obviously, Biden um, is acknowledging um, that he never intentionally attempted to make anybody feel uncomfortable. Uh, the one thing he has not done to this point is say, I'm sorry, uh, which seems to be a call from, from a lot of folks to hear him make. And I have to say that personally, I was kind of backing Biden in terms of it was a different time, a different era. I'm not sure if Biden should be paying today for things that happened, you know, a while ago, uh, given the changed climate. Uh, but then obviously yesterday we saw Joe Biden kind of, to some extent, mock uh, all of these different concerns when he hugged a woman going onto stage and then went to the microphone and said, nobody worry, I had consent, uh, which really seemed to throw everything back in the face of some of his other, um, I, I don't want to use the word accusers here necessarily, but some of the women who have brought forth stories. Do you think it matters for Joe Biden? Do you think Joe Biden's ultimately going to run? Do you think this changes his decision-making calculus in any way, shape, or form? I think it matters significantly, and I think that there's nothing um, funny about, um, you know, make comments about, it's okay, I have consent. Now, when we look at any politician who has a long career, uh, you know, it's like our lives. The longer we survive, um, the more we can look back and say, I really wish I would have done that differently. Um, but I, I think we're really on thin ice when we start making the argument that it was a different time. Now, having said that, we are just as we are in this moment in time right here now, Will, you and I having this conversation, we might look at some of the things we're saying now and 10 years from now, 20 years from now, say, yeah, I would love to do a repeat on that. But there are major issues involving uh, race and gender. You know, Joe does have a little bit of a historically long mixed bag. And there's different ways that we could discuss this. One is by talking about the evolution of his consciousness, the evolution of his political behavior, that uh, when there was a time when he opposed busing to achieve racial integration in his schools, 
You know, he he's come forth and talked about his regret on issues like that, his regret on the 1994 crime bill that was seen as prejudicial against African-Americans. So at some level, what we see is a human being who's adapting to a changing political landscape, who's adapting to a different social um, milieu with different social expectations. But I think that on a matter of, you know, the the Me Too moment, um, I, I would have respected his response much more had he begun it by saying Me Too. Not that it was an accusation in the Me Too moment, but saying Me Too. I have done things that through the prism and lens of history, I might not have realized were inappropriate at that time. But looking at it now, I can recognize and accept that it was inappropriate. And I am sorry for my behavior. And there are positive steps that I'm taking that will prevent any further such behaviors. And I, I think at some level, he's, he's kind of getting there. But you had mentioned the absence of an apology. And I think strategically, he's thinking, unless I know exactly what I'm apologizing for, I'm not going to do that because then um, I'm complicit in the establishment of my own guilt of something that I don't know if I'm guilty of. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I mean, I, it's where I keep being very torn on. This. I mean, by, part of Biden's allure is the Uncle Joe image, the I'm going to be close. I'm going to, you know, he, he's a close talker. If we use a Seinfeld reference. Joe Biden is a close talker. He always has been. He always will be. But I think to your greater point, I mean, if we look back historically, the question is, how does this compound with other issues related to female rights, women's rights, where many women consider Joe Biden a champion? But what's interesting is you do have the fact that that Joe Biden, you know, to your point about the early 90s, publicly apologized at this point for not giving Anita Hill the hearing she deserved, um, right. kind of putting her on trial versus undermining what was going on around. And I think for a lot of Democrats, one of the, the questions has to become, is they think about the calculus of who they're looking at in 2020, Joe Biden might be our best chance to beat Donald Trump. He excels in the areas where Trump turned these stars um, in his election. Um, he obviously has that personality. People know him. Is that worth the possible risk that comes from putting Biden back on a pedestal after things like this happen. And again, I will say compared to a lot of people that have been accused in recent years, part of me does believe that Joe Biden is genuinely just, as you said, not understanding what the big deal is and not understanding what he did that was necessarily um, wrong or perceived as wrong or invasive. Um, and obviously the, the public back and forth between Biden and Nancy Pelosi on this in terms of Pelosi saying, what he did is not disqualifying, but your apology can't be, I'm sorry you were offended. Um, the apology has to come from somewhere more genuine than that. Um, but it is an interesting question of, you know, the appeal to moderate right-wingers. I will tell you as somebody who sits on that fence, Joe Biden's the Democrat that I look at. He says if he says and does the right things, he could swing me to the left for this election. Um Needless to say, Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke, and Kamala Harris don't do that. So there's going to be a lot of discussion about, you know, what does this mean, I think, for Democrats? And what does this mean if Biden says, you know, I'm not sure I'm made for politics today in the same way I used to be. So maybe I just don't belong in the race at all. Yeah. And I think that's what Joe Biden is uh, probably very aware of is, um, you know, Hillary Clinton's, well, you know, the, the connection or the lack of connection with a base of white voters that she wasn't able to rely on going into the election uh, in 2016. You know, because here Uncle Joe is that old school, old fashioned guy and has some of the liabilities that he's, you know, showing in real time that he's shedding. And I think that's the narrative that he is trying to project. Well, that's, well, that's naturally authentically emerging is that he has this appeal to the average person. He has this appeal to the older, working-class, white Democrats and independents. And at some level, strategically, he is that person who would be positioned right in the middle to be able to pull back, sort of like when we talked about the Reagan Democrats and Clinton coming in and pulling them back to the Democratic fold. You know, who's going to be the person who's going to be able to capture the centrists and <clears throat> say that there's a viable option that makes the Democrats happy but that could also tug some people that could be drifting to the other side. 
Um, it's still early enough in the pre-campaign season for Biden to potentially recover from this. Uh, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very difficult to see how he handles and how he owns it, because part of the endearing Uncle Joe, uh, we've got to acknowledge that that might resonate very effectively with one category of voters, but it might be a point of significant disconnect with another category of voters who were looking more at uh, Kamala Harris, who were looking, looking more at Beto, um, who are looking more at Bernie Sanders. And I, I think it's critically important for the Democratic Party to begin thinking about how they project a unified House and account for their weaknesses. Because, uh, and this, this is something that we're aware of. Well, it's um, if you're if you're taking the high ground, if you're always asserting the moral high ground, you better make sure that you occupy it on some very some very big feet and some very firm soil. Um, so it's easy to have those sands shift right between right beneath your feet. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think the another key here is, I mean, if we think about the 2020 Democratic field today, I mean, it's growing by the day. Um, I look at just the last week um, and from a personal perspective, uh, an individual who is from my local area um, is the representative to my former congressional district where I grew up, Tim Ryan, announced that he's going to run for president. Uh, and we're hitting the point now where people are running just for the sake of running. Tim Ryan is one of the most underqualified presidential candidates in history. The man has zero chance. He is delusional. He has been in Congress for 15 years. He has passed two pieces of legislation. And while I am sure that those two federal buildings need a new name, there are no accolades. And he's simply running off of ego and personal view. Um, and he's muddying the waters even further. And I think we have a lot of folks still talking about that. But I guess my question is, when we think about this 2020 field, and I think he growing with individuals that don't necessarily have the records, that don't necessarily add anything new to the mix, who looks good? Who does this help? What do you think happens in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina at this point? And who do you think finally emerges? First thing we've got to do is we've got to turn off our uh, white noise machine. When we look at it from the Democratic Party standpoint, here's what I think is happening. Um, Jimmy Carter kind of famously commented that if you can't be Ronald Reagan, you don't serve to be president, right? Um, there's this notion of underestimating your opponent. And I think right now, every Democrat on earth who is credentialed or marginally credentialed thinks, even I could be president, because if all I've got to do is go up against Donald Trump, I could win this. But the fact of the matter is, with Hillary Clinton, we thought that, right? It's almost like, just stand there and hope that nothing blows up in your face and you're going to be the next president of the United States. And the polls well, told us that thought was right, which is where I get even more confused on this. Yep, me too. And then also when we go back to um, George Bush Jr., the, the bar was set so low for our expectation of public performance in the debates that, you know, when you misread your opponent's ability um, you give them an opportunity to succeed because you've lowered the bar for them. And I think right now we see this very cluttered field of Democrats who are thinking, this is my only chance potentially to ever be president. I'm never going to have an opponent as easy to defeat and unseat as Donald Trump. Um, and a lot, I think there's a lot of impulsive behavior. You know, you could say, well, give it another four years. But the assumption, I'm convinced of this, Will, is that the Democrats aren't thinking, a lot of the Democrats in the field aren't thinking, well, give it four years, assuming he'll be an eight, a two-term president, and then go for the open seat for the White House at that juncture, being able to say, you know, I'll criticize eight years of the Trump administration. I think a lot of the Democrats in the field right now are thinking, one of us is going to be the next president, and then that person's going to be president for eight years. And then I will effectively have lost my chance to be president. So I'm throwing my hat in a ring. So among the candidates, and, you know, I'm going I'm to tell the viewers right now, I'm doing what everybody else is doing. I'm scrolling through to see what the update is of, you know, who's in, who's out. And a lot of, you know, we, you can't underestimate people like Elizabeth Warren, who has got a remarkable set of credentials. When we talk about people who have... um the authority, right? The institutional authority to be able to 
develop and run a meaningful campaign uh, from a politically mature standpoint, uh, Elizabeth Warren is clearly in that category. Um, Mayor Pete is not in that category. Bernie Sanders has been around, but Bernie Sanders is the magnet that pulls away from the Democratic Party, not that unifies the Democratic Party. Real quick, let's talk about Mayor Pete for a second. Because I'm okay. very, I'm very interested in Mayor Pete. Because I have to say, in terms of you know, this candidate field, guys, I think I'd just like to have a conversation with, or people I'd just like to have a conversation with. I think Mayor Pete's at the top of the list today. And obviously, oh, yeah. he hasn't formally announced. But what do you think about Mayor Pete? You know, here's one of the things that, if I'm looking at it from um, this side of the ideological uh, equation, and uh, if the viewers haven't. Um, well, listeners rather haven't figured it out. You know, I come at things from from the left uh, pretty naturally, um, and it does cloud my judgment sometimes, even academically, to be honest with you. But there's something about South Bend Mayor Pete that appeals to something that the Democratic Party would love to amplify, which is, you know, he's young. He served as a naval officer. Um, he would be the youngest and first openly gay president if elected. He captures a cross-section of the American electorate on the left-hand side of the continuum rather elegantly, rather effectively. One of the questions strategically is, again, from a strategic standpoint, not a personal standpoint, is, um, is he prepared to be president? And I'm not going to play the game of whether our country is ready for that, but at 37 years old, um, is there something young and charismatic and appealing? And we could talk about Kennedy and we could talk about Clinton in this regard. And we could say, yeah, there is something really alluring about that. But we can't underestimate candidates on the basis of their youth. Um, he is an emerging political actor, I think, more than he is an established political actor, if that clarifies it. That makes perfect sense. Because, man, that's where I keep coming back to Mayor Pete is I look at it and I'm like, the man speaks like every language spoken across the world yeah. um, and does it well. He comes across well. He's fun on social media. He's been a naval officer. Um, and, I mean, it's just the, the story about learning to, to read Norwegian to finish a book. Um, is phenomenal, but like you, my concern is there's comparisons kind of being drawn to Obama in some circles in some ways. I'm not sure he has the natural political skills Obama had, and my concern for Mayor Pete is if he somehow sneaks through this, uh, that Washington, D.C. will eat him alive. Um, and that's not meant as a slight towards him as much as a the way he is, the way he acts. There's a big difference from you know, football Jesus in South Bend, Indiana, to president. Um, but I think it'd be interesting to watch play out. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to throw in a name that I, I didn't expect to be saying today, but uh, Dan Quayle. And the reason I mentioned Dan Quayle is that interesting. Well, let's let's think about this, right? When like when we think about Dan Quayle right now, Will, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that name? Potato. <laughs> right. Um, but when we think about Dan Quayle earlier on, on the Republican side of the aisle, Dan Quayle was perceived to be a young, somewhat charismatic, good-looking, up-and-comer who would really sort of galvanize part of the base for the Republican Party, right? Um, there was some open speculation about whether Dan Quayle had certain of the Kennedy-esque qualities of a young person who will grow in the White House into a greater leadership position from vice president to president. Dan Quayle sort of proved that he was not ready for prime time. And I, I am not going to equate Mayor Pete with Dan Quayle, but one of the things that, and I know this even when I work with faculty in faculty development, um, we, we should have a self-awareness mechanism that makes us wonder if I'm ready for this yet. Because uh, Dan, Dan Quayle was not ready for the White House. Dan Quayle was not ready to have a microphone in his face every time he spoke. Dan Quayle was not prepared for the, the constant pressure and presence of the media and the fun that the media could have. And when we talk about political maturation, 
You know, we, we need to think with any aspect of our career, whether we're in academics or uh, working in the automobile industry, that we could feel like we're really good and this is my time, but are we ready for the other things that surround um, our ascent? And is it sometimes wise if you have the opportunity to wait for a moment where your star has risen a little bit more um, than to capitalize on its uh, moment when it's rising? Like you said about learning Norwegian, I mean, the, the guy is, yeah, I mean, who doesn't want to sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk to him for like six hours, right, and, and learn more? And I think that there's something very, very inspiring about him and about his approach to governance and politics that goes beyond the label that everybody would apply, the youngest and the first openly gay president, if elected. Yeah, and I guess just for the sake of time, for, for this little area we're talking about, my, my one question that builds off of this is, obviously, if we deal with the polls and we scroll through and get a sense of where things stand, Bernie and Joe are typically one and two in most states right now, um, yep. both being the only two that are getting over 20%. Can either of them, do you think, bring the party together to beat Trump? Uh, I am personally not convinced that, it, you know, if my options are Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, that's not a difficult decision for me as much as I may not be 100% behind one of those candidates. If you have Donald Trump against a Mayor Pete or Donald Trump against a Cory Booker, um, maybe there's more allure. Do you think Bernie or Biden, if they can win the primary, can actually bring the party together and win a general election? I think Joe Biden can bring the party together more effectively than Bernie Sanders can. Um, Bernie's voters have, have sort of demonstrated their, uh, their strength of commitment, uh, uh, to him as a candidate, as a person. And here sometimes, you know, we really do have to wage that, um, battle between ideology and electability. And I think Joe Biden brings electability to the table. Yeah, no disagreement here. Um, switching gears a little bit, uh, let's switch and talk about the role of government in the lives of the average American, because there are really three stories from this week that I all tie back to regulation in some way, shape or form that that I think are important to dive a little deeper into. Um, and just to mention what those three are going to be, the first one is obviously the the results of the, the Ethiopian plane crash, Boeing's response, and now some pressure on uh, the FAA to kind of discuss the, the regulation process and the idea that the airlines are being able to self-regulate. Uh, and then second and third, some changes in New York over the last week, first with New York City bringing in the congestion tax, uh, trying to help at least take some of the stress off of public service by taxing individuals during high volume traffic times for entering certain areas of New York City. And then obviously the state of New York becoming the second state in the United States to go um, statewide on a plastic bag ban. Um, and in all three of these, we're, we're talking about regulating either industries or introducing things that regulate individual human behavior. So starting with Bowen, Brian, what are your thoughts on the role the FAA does? What are your thoughts about, you know, the 737 MAX in general and what we're seeing, what companies like Boeing have in? I can tell you as somebody who, who flies two or three days a week, um, I've been on a 737 MAX. Uh, I don't know how comfortable I would feel doing that now. I've also been on tiny prop planes that I don't feel comfortable on regularly. So it's definitely a question that I think speaks American interest. Yeah, I think the, the larger uh, umbrella here is, is about regulatory policy. And the core question is, uh, is this what happens when we have uh, a failure of the government to regulate what goes on in industry? Or is it a failure of what happens when industry fails to regulate itself? And is this therefore a call for regulation? Um, you know, you've taught public policy, I've taught public policy. And one of the things that we talk about is what's called focusing events, right? And we have this equilibrium, and we talk about punctuated equilibriums. So here's what happens. We go a very long time where everything is fairly stable, fairly normal. We have no challenges or disruptions to the status quo. And then something immediately happens, right? So something punctuates the equilibrium. And then if there's something that punctuates the equilibrium in a catastrophic way in particular, this becomes a focusing event that makes us call into question the way that we handle things um, through government and with, in this case, with industry. And uh, the bigger issue is really, uh, is this a failure of our current regulatory policy? 
Because what's playing out right now is, and we saw this with um, the regulation of the um, of the, the deep water um, uh, the deep water horizon blowout a few years ago, that something catastrophic happens. Then Obama comes in and there's a call for regulation and changes to policy. And right now we have a president who is in office saying, let's roll back those because regulation impedes the performance of industry. And industry's pushback is also, we know our stuff better than anybody does. Let us regulate ourselves. Um, the question is, what do we make of this focusing event right now that focuses on the airlines? And I think what it calls into question is whether the FAA should be more assertive in assuring, at least assuring, that here, for example, with the Boeing 737 MAXs, that uh, the pilots are more prepared to be able to deal with what happens when they are triggered to certain human interventions, because there's some question about whether they were adequately prepared to fly the plane when the nose dips at a certain degree. And uh, we're really ultimately back at regulatory policy, I think, more than we are with the airlines. The thing is, so many of us fly so often that we care about the story because we don't want to be on that plane. That's definitely that's definitely true. I mean, that's, that's where I keep falling back to. And, I, and I'm torn on this because I'm not opposed to self-regulation. Um, obviously, I mean, the work of Bessie with Deepwater Horizon was problematic. And if we think about it, the FDA trusts drug company scientists to do all of their own testing, and then they verify. And when I look at the cost estimates that come out with the FAA, I think the numbers I saw uh, was the FAA saying that it'd be close to $2 billion and at least 10,000 new employees if they wanted airlines to hand over all regulations to the outside agency. And I'm not sure that's the best answer. Um, but to your point, I think you're right on the pendulum, and I think the pendulum is swinging in that direction, obviously. I'm also one when it comes to the air travel piece, though, that looks at it and says, you know, every time I worry or every time there's a huge dip or something happens while I'm on a plane, I'm thinking, you know, there are how many planes in the air right now and we get a crash once a year, maybe. But now we have two with similar stories. And to your point about the self-regulation of the training, the most concerning thing out of all of this to me has been airline pilots telling us that they've learned how to fly this plane from an iPad app. Um, which does come into the regulations in terms of training standards, but not necessarily something where government's best suited to fix Yeah, I think you're right that one of the questions would definitely be, what qualifies the government to teach people how to fly planes? And we've been down a sword with everything, right? Even prison reform. Um, what does the government know about running a prison? You've got to be able to tr trust the experts in their field and to cultivate that expertise. Well, one of the ways to do this, of course, is simply by saying, we're going to have some overarching policies that require more stringent application of rules and procedures to guarantee that we have um, an applied command of aircrafts rather than a simulated command of aircrafts. Um, obviously, we're always going to be doing simulations, and we're going to be using the newest technology to do that. So when we talk about iPads, everything sounds like a video game, and the public dismisses it and says, oh, my God, it can't be that easy. That's terrible. The counterargument is, if we're using technology to its optimum effectiveness to be able to simulate a reality so that we don't have a tragic consequence, should we be doing that? The answer is categorically yes. Can we be doing more? Almost certainly yes. The idea of imposing uh, regulations that require a substantial investment of personnel and resources and so forth, um, that would, of course, make the average consumer feel relieved at one level but alarmed at another because somebody's going to be picking up the tab for that. You know, wow, airlines just went under. So it turns out, like, flying to Europe for 35 cents was not a good model. But, you know, when people are going to be looking at the airlines, they okay. want safety. Yeah, they want safety, but they want affordability. They want accountability, um, but they also want to just have the confidence that the pilots are adequately trained. And in this regard, you know, in the realm of public policy and from a public policy analysis standpoint, um, I would think that the public appetite is more attuned to the government establishing overarching policies and in allowing or requiring industries to more effectively regulate themselves. Yeah, and I think that's the part. I mean, once we see the curtain get pulled back, I think that's when our, our alarm bells start going off. I mean, for me personally, in all honesty, it was um, actually on a 
flight back from Idaho, uh, where I happened to be sat next to a pilot for, for a large domestic airline that I, I trust regularly. Um, and she was showing me all of the Snapchat videos she took while she was piloting the plane earlier in the day because, in her words, outside of takeoff and landing, it's, it's really an autopilot job today, which was, again, makes perfect sense. We have companies that are testing, you know, pilotless flights, so I get it, but it's also a whole new way of thinking about these things. And to your point, the question really is, if I can fly Allegiant or Wow Airlines or somebody for 22 cents for this five-hour flight, What's it worth to me? Um, and the thing is, I don't think we rationally calculate that until we get the first sign that the plane is in trouble. Um, and at that point, it could be, be potentially too late. But this idea of the self-regulation, I think, is going to keep coming up. And you and I have talked about this in the past. I mean, a, a prime example of where it works well is the Motion Picture Association. Yep. Yeah, and, and I think that there's a lot of plausibility to the claims that when people have been interviewed about these issues and, you know, one camp is saying, this is why we need the government to go in and, and, and regulate, regulate, regulate. Uh, the counter argument is that um, agency um, and organizational self-regulation actually can work very efficiently and very effectively. And the Motion Picture Association is a great is a great example of that, where the government's pretty much like saying, look, these are the overarching rules and policies. Don't do anything that conflicts with these or push the envelope too hard. You come up with your own policies, make it happen, make it work. And while we might quibble over whether something should be R or NC-17, um, generally speaking, the model works. And some of the arguments that we're hearing, even with the Boeing 737 arguments, is that despite these tragedies, you know, is, is this really a diagnostic, right? Does this, does this punctuation and the equilibrium of having a pretty good track record on an annual basis of flight safety mean that there's a more significant problem. But the one thing that we all know, Will, is that when anything like this happens, you can't step back politically and say, well, you know, things happen. Statistically, the number of crashes is very small. There's not really a problem, so we're not going to do much about it. Regulatory processes are going to kick in. Regulatory specialists are going to um, become a little bit more activated. And it's going to be, I think, a little bit of, you know, this is going to be tightening up. I don't think that this is going to be a call for a greater a greater role for the government necessarily. Hopefully not. Um, we the regulation side, the, the congestion pricing scheme uh, in New York City is really going to run. Yeah. Based on the study that they're using here, they said that a, over 700,000 cars a day enter what they're referring to as the Manhattan Zone, which is being defined as anywhere basically south of Central Park, where they're thinking about doing this. Uh, and I'm going to say this is one that just takes me off to no end. Uh, the <laughs> idea of, of taxing these folks for, for doing this. Uh, I know they want to ease traffic. I know they want to cut pollution. And I know they want to lift mass transit. But it comes back to me. Of, if your mass transit system was doing its job and was built and capable of handling the number of customers that wanted to use it, they'd probably use it. Um, again, I have good friends that live in New York City. Nobody talks about how much they can't wait to get up in the morning, get in their car, and drive through New York City. Uh, which means they're looking for alternatives. And I'm just, it's new and it's a pilot, but I, I'm not convinced when they're throwing out three, four, five rationale reasons as to why they're doing it, um, that this has actually even really been thought about. And I'm wondering what it's going to end up costing. I mean, they're working out the details of this plan, uh, which from what I understand is going to use a network of plate readers that are going to be expensive. They're going to build vehicles anywhere in Manhattan, south of Central Park, and the toll's likely to be more than 10 bucks. So what happens to the people that can't afford to wait 45 minutes to get on a train that's overstuffed with the gills and end up being late to work, that end up not being able to do anything because they can't afford that and the city's not taking care of them in any other way? Yeah, a couple things. One is that um, 10 bucks is not going to dissuade, a 10 buck penalty is not going to dissuade a lot of people from getting in their car and driving. I mean, the cost of living in, in New York is primitively expensive to begin with. And so if you say it's 10 bucks, I honestly know people who will say, oh, it's only 10 bucks. I can deal with that. Um, I think that this is not going to see people like suddenly abandoning their cars and jumping on the subways. And now having grown up in that area, you know, I remember the subways from the 1970s and it was scary as hell. I mean, exciting in all the right ways, but you think about movies like The Warriors and 
you could look back and think, man, there was a lot of reality that was woven in there. I mean, of course, a lot of non-reality as well. But the policy, I mean, the policy goal, I think, is a good one, Will, which is in really congested urban environments where the cars are bumper to bumper, the parking is at a premium, the pollution becomes significant. Is there a way to mitigate that? Shouldn't we be thinking about ways to offset that? And I would think that, yeah, we would all think absolutely. And we've, we've done this. Like even when we met in Chicago, well, I remember we we're talking about like, you know, you could, you could get an Uber from point A to point B, but by the time you wait for it and get there, you might as well walk it. Right. So I think at some level, we're all rational beings figuring out how we're going to navigate and negotiate our space. But the other side of it is the tax that when we start seeing things that have a cost and a penalty and a punishment associated with it, and it's done in a punitive way rather than an encouraging way, um, I don't know how effective the, um, the, the, tar- the tax is going to be, you know, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, I'm calling it like the plaques tax that, you know, if you've got a little plaque on your vehicle and it reads it and, you know, if you drive it through, you're going to be fine. I, I well, don't yeah, and I think it's automatically turning things around. Yeah, that's my thing. I don't think it does. I mean, they, you know, London tried something similar, and the problem London ran into, and they were charging people, I forget, like seven bucks American roughly. Everybody switched to rideshare, and the city had exempted rideshare programs and taxis from the tax. So now it was just, I'm not going to take my own car in, I'm just going to take somebody else's. And I feel like in New York, that's what they're setting themselves up to because, I mean, if I think about downtown New York traffic as an outsider, I think taxis and delivery trucks. And that's a completely different cost share concern versus Will just jumps in his car and drives through New York City. And I just don't know how that ultimately plays out. And I also wonder about things like what happens when the readers go down? What's the fine going to be if somebody doesn't have their plaque necessarily? How does that end up looking? And does it end up being more of an administrative burden to send all of this out versus, you know, just actually putting the time and effort into making public transport? a little better for people where they might naturally go there. Right. And I, you know, I have a very romantic um, memory of New York and I remember what the subways were like. I remember what the big yellow taxi cabs were like. And um, the one thing I think is transferable across these decades to where we are right now is that um, New York is a, is a city of districts. You know, we talk about the garment district. I mean, you literally see people transporting items across streets, but also in trucks. So what we have is, not just the people sitting bumper to bumper, because most of the people who I know who have lived, you know, in the city itself, not just in the boroughs coming into Manhattan, but in the city itself, um, they get up, they go outside, and they walk to where they're going. But you've got the trucks, you've got deliveries, and you've got um, Uber, and you've got Lyft. And so what's going to happen with these other means that people choose to be able to get around? What then becomes the cost? What then becomes the penalty? on the equivalent, the functional equivalent of taxi cabs now. I think it's, again, it's not a bad idea to think about an alternative to offset the congestion in the city and the pollution that's caused as a consequence of it. But to think about, you know, I I think that it's something that is not yet thought through fully. Um, There's still a lot more, even before we get to public comments, we have to think through what this policy would actually look like and work like, knowing that a lot of the congestion in the city is not Will O'Brien trying to drive up to Central Park South. Absolutely. And I think that's going to be an interesting part to see play out. Public comments, I'm assuming, on this are going to be a whole lot of fun to read if they get posted. Oh, yes. um, and then the last piece to kind of talk about this morning, the, the plastic ban bag that uh, New York's looking to implement uh, during the next year. And Governor Cuomo brought this up you know, over a year ago. Um, yep. California has obviously already done this. Hawaii doesn't have a statewide ban, but every one of their counties has a ban. So we know that it's basically an effective statewide ban. Um, and I'm interested on your thoughts on this one. I mean, me personally, it, you know, I, I do care about the environment. I'm not some completely cold-hearted conservative. But at the same time, I'm not sure the government telling me I can't have a plastic bag um, speaks well for the environmental movement. Because what that suggests to me is they've yet to be able to convince me that Killing sea turtles with plastic bags by using them and throwing them away is actually a problem. So I worry about what's the takeoff point from this. What does it mean? Do we think it gets enacted? How do citizens respond? All of those fun policy questions. Yeah, I, man, I'm coming at this one from a, a position of shame. 
liberal shame. I, like so many other Americans, have a bag filled with bags. I've got multiple plastic bags filled with many more plastic bags that's tucked into a cabinet. And I look at all these plastic bags because by default they'll say paper or plastic and you say plastic or without being asked, they just bag it and you take the stuff and go because you need something to carry it. And in an ideal world, you know, uh, here in Moscow, Idaho, we've got a remarkable co-op. We've got a remarkable farmer's market. And in these environments, we, we all play by different rules, right? We're all socially conditioned to have our little, you know, like hemp woven bag that we take with us everywhere that leaves no impact on the environment and we fill it. But typically what we're doing is we're just buying stuff for the day or the next couple of days. So there might be something to be said about our shopping habits and our spending habits. But in those areas where we're talking about farmers markets and co-ops, um, there's sort of an ideological parallel uh, with our behavior that we take into and out of, in a very literal sense, these environments. When we think about going to the large you know, stores like Walmart and things like this, where things get put into uh, plastic bags by default, you know, it's, it, it is bad. I mean, there, there's no doubt that we have a problem with the amount of plastics that are out there. There is no doubt that in, in my community, at least right now, we are no longer allowed to put plastic bags in recyclables uh, because it's and, – and so, in fact, they will not take your big, gigantic can of recyclables because there might be a plastic bag buried in it. And so then I've got to dig through and find it and hope that next week they'll come and take my recyclables. And that's all for a good reason, and the reason is that the bags, you know, slow down and halt the effective sorting of the recyclables. But the net consequences from a lot of people I'm talking to is, I mean, a lot of good lefties are saying, I've given up on recycling because it's too difficult now because of the damn plastic bags. So there's that issue. Um, saying that we should get away from the plastic bags as something that we carry our groceries in is one thing, but it's also the production of the bags, right? So there's an economic impact from the plastic bags that are never going to totally biodegrade, they're going to be there kind of forever, and it might choke the sea turtle, as you mentioned, but they're also something that they're not going to just simply disappear in our landfills. Um, secondly, there's the production of it. So there's the production cost, and there's also the environmental impact associated with producing plastics. So maybe the regulation should be on, you know, maybe we should be producing fewer bags and use that as the mechanism to step back plastic bag usage, but then we have paper bags. And now we all feel better if we use paper bags in a grocery store rather than paper plastic bags, but we're still not minimizing our footprint as much as we think we are. We're just shifting our behaviors rather than using perpetually recyclable things that we keep with us all the time. Uh, I applaud the effort. I like the idea of moving away from our consumption and production of plastics that are non-recyclable in many environments in many instances. Um, but I think this one's got uh, a little more hidden punches associated with it, too. Yeah, and again, I mean, I, I, I care about the environment on the same way as you. I mean, I have plastic bags all over the place. Um, part of me just feels like, again, tie it back to the corporations versus government coming in and banning it. I mean, I go to Publix once a week. We don't have farmer's markets in Jacksonville, Florida, at least not one that anybody wants to go to. Um, so the result, I go and I get all my groceries, and I'm one of those people who I will make it in one trip no matter what, even if it means I cut off circulation in my fingers. So plastic's my only option. But if public sat there and just put everything in a cloth bag and charged me because I kept getting new cloth bags, I would take my cloth bag back with me. So the stores could be useful here, too, in starting to change behavior, and I think some try. Um, but it's difficult then because, again, we're tying into their corporate profits, and I, you know, I'm willing to pay a little bit for that. I'm not willing for my grocery bill to go up 10% every week because I'm now using this. But just in general, from a, a human behavior perspective, get me to change my behavior without coming in and simply telling me you cannot have a plastic bag anymore. Um, because again, that's going to help in other areas. The spillover, it's a different spillover. Thing. I'm thinking about it there, which will also impact how I view recycling maybe or how I view other types of waste. Versus if I just know the government's sitting there telling me no, it's just going to tick me off and make me long for the day of the plastic bag. Yeah, longing for the – well, the thing is, Will, you're always going to have like 6,000 plastic bags in your house. So you'll, you'll never really be, you know, 
longing for that day because it's really just in whatever room that you stash them in. Um, sure, sure. I, I think, yeah, I, I do think that finding a way to move away from things, and we could talk about all different sort of like public policy responses, but this is one of those things that when we teach about this kind of stuff, we talk about scale. Like you mentioned, going to Publix. Going to Publix versus going to the co-op could be, be very different. Uh, if your co-op is sort of membership owned and you say, you know, one of the things that we want to come up with is a policy that says next time you go shopping, you're going to get two free um, bags that are neither paper nor plastic. And you use them every time you shop here. And then people as a source of pride will carry those around. So we do see that. Right. People are very proud of that kind of stuff. So there are certain things you could do when your scale is very small. But if you go to Walmart or to Publix and you say, Okay, guess what? You know, here you've got 20 bags full of stuff that's going to cut off the circulation to your fingers if you carry the plastic bags. What we're going to do is we're going to give you all 20 reusable bags that you'll use every time you come to the store. Um, that's all. That's the, the scale issue is really hard and really tricky. Um, I do applaud the efforts. I do think that we need to be doing more to look at the types of materials that we're manufacturing, that we're putting into circulation, and that are ultimately having a, a deleterious effect on the environment. But we need to think about it also at another level, not instead of, but also at another level. Sure, I agree with that. But again, it's just the, the government regulation piece on this one, just getting into human behavior in a way I just, I, I just can't handle it. Um, that's actually going to be it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support's obviously what keeps us going as politics guys, and we truly appreciate all of you who support us in that way. Subscribing to the show also really helps us, as does just sharing our episodes or finding us on social media. Easy to do right in your podcast app. Click on the share symbol, which is that little triangle thing usually. Uh, and word of mouth is obviously our best advertising. Feel free to leave ratings and reviews on iTunes as well. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com forward slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, Will Miller, and Bruce Johnson. This show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back on Wednesday with a new show, and we hope you'll join us then.